following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I want you to turn with me to the book of Jonah, please, which is found amongst the minor prophets. Not because they're insignificant, it's just the title we give them. It's a little bit shorter than maybe Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah. How are we going here, sir? You all right? If we could go to that first slide, that would be good. Are we there now with the ark welder, everything? We are too. <laughs> I had a picture there of the Andromeda galaxy. I don't know if you recognize that galaxy. For those of you who are fans of galaxies, that was Andromeda we were looking at before, which Apple seemed to like. Um, I remember many years ago, um, I, was, I heard a story from my pastor at a church down in Christchurch. I went to a very small church of about 80 people, and we met in this old Methodist church that was built in 1899. And you couldn't fit many more people in there. It was freezing cold in winter, so cold that the piano went out of tune. And they had a little light, they would keep a light bulb in the piano. It was an old steel frame upright piano, and they'd put the light bulb in there to keep the piano somehow to keep it in tune over the winter. And in the summer, it was so hot, but the windows were all nailed closed, and the roof was so steep when they wanted it repainted, there was no way I was going up there. <laughs> there was, the chances of you surviving that was not great. It was a miracle, a sign of the end times if you made it through that. And, um, but this church, I remember the pastor telling the story. He was a high, sh- high country shepherd. He had a horse and dogs, and he looked after sheep. And over a weekend, he would come down to our church, and he would preach. Very good preacher. And I remember him and his wife used to take in the odd child from the local community from um, solo mums, from single-parent families, to give them a bit of a break. And he'd bring those kids along to church and just give, the, give those mums a bit of, a, a bit of downtime. And um, I recall that he t- the one time this young lad had been staying with him, I guess he must have been about 10, 11, or 12 years of age, 10 years of age. And the pastor had been out in the shed doing some arc welding. I don't know if you've ever done any arc welding. I'm, I've done some, but not particularly good. That's why I was called Bubbles or flaky, that's when the arc welding doesn't go so well, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, but he was doing some welding, and this young lad put his head round the door and looked in, and of course his eyes were immediately drawn like a moth to a flame to this bright light, and he started staring at it, this incandescent bright light. And the pastor recognized that he was there, and he stopped welding, he lifted up the visor, and he said to the young lad, he said, listen, you need to stop doing this, and please uh, go inside, because it's not good for your eyes to do this. And this is the reason why welders wear these visors, folks, because it is not good. And um, so the young lad tucked his head back around the corner, and the pastor put his visor back down and continued welding. Well, that young lad, though, couldn't help himself. So as soon as the pastor had thought that he'd gone, he ducked his head back around and started to watch. Until the welding was finished, he continued looking at that bright light. Well... After he'd finished welding, the pastor shut everything down, but the kid ran inside quickly so he wasn't spotted. They cleaned up. They then um, had dinner, put him into bed, told him a child's children's story, and then they went into bed. It's North Canterbury, high country farm, inky blackness, beautiful bright stars shining. All was at peace as they slept and slumbered in an idyllic setting. 
Today's message is Jonah on the run or the runaway prophet. Because I cannot avoid this, ladies and gentlemen, though all the things that I said about Jonah last week were a different way to look at Jonah, there is another way to look at the book of Jonah. If you've ever read the book of Jonah, I hope some of you in your private time have decided to do a bit of reading of the entire story, you'll discover that it has a very particular structure. We discover that Jonah goes down to Joppa. We discover that Jonah goes down into a boat and Jonah goes down with some men and then he goes down to the bottom of the ocean and then after the, at the end of chapter 2 he goes up onto dry land, he goes up to Nineveh, then he goes up to look over Nineveh. So the structure of this book is, is a beautifully crafted where it's a series of steps going down and then a series of steps going up. Today, unfortunately, we have to look at the steps going down. What occurred with Jonah? If you have your notes today, hopefully they've been handed out. Does everyone have their notes? Are you going to fill in the gaps? I think they may be being handed round. Um, I hope you have them. They should look like this. You'll have some gaps in the front, and then there's a map on the back to go with today's sermon. Not essential, but kind of useful, as you will shortly see. In the book of Jonah, we read in the first few verses... Of the first chapter, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into that ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners on the ship were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship and was fast asleep." And of course, we know the rest of the story is that the captain comes to him and says, what mean you sleeper? How can you sleep when we're all about to die? And then it all becomes, it is all revealed that Jonah is the cause of this mighty storm and tempest. It is threatening the lives of everybody on the ship. And so Jonah says, the only way it's going to be calm is if I become a sacrifice here and you throw me overboard. And of course, it saves these people on this vessel. Each time Jonah goes down in the book of Jonah, it was a step further away from God. In your notes, you can fill in those gaps if you brought yourself a pen or a pencil with you. It might just, um, it'll help you in remembering some of this material. In Jonah 1.3, we see that Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. There are two questions that arise from this. First, did he really believe that he could flee from the presence of God? (laughs) I think this is a great question, ladies and gentlemen. Is it possible for you to hide from God? Is there somewhere on planet Earth that you could run to, you could flee to, and God would not see you if you could tunnel yourself into the depths of the Earth, heading towards the core of our great terra firma? Is it possible that God would not be able to see you? Perhaps he's not Superman with X-ray vision. Perhaps there's some kind of kryptonite that might cloak you or hide you from God. And the next question is, why would he go to Tarshish? Why not Hamilton? 
I mean, let's face it, folks, if you want to flee from God, <laughs> no, that's not fair to the Tron, is it, ladies and gentlemen? Hamilton's a beautiful city, amazing place. I'm just not sure why I need to visit it. I don't know. <laughs> Hamilton's a pretty nice place, but there we are. We're a bit parochial sometimes, aren't we? Why would he do this? The first question is, could he, did he believe he could flee from the presence of God? The answer is no, in the sense that you and I understand the presence of God. In the sense that he understood the presence of God in a particular way, the answer is possibly. You see, he's no Gumby. He is actually a prophet that hears directly from God. He knows that God is omnipresent and that there is, a, in, a, in a very true sense, there is nowhere you can flee from God. How do I know this? Because he knew the Psalms of David. David's Psalms were written much earlier. If you read Jonah's Psalm or prayer in the belly of the fish, you'll discover that he does a bit of cribbing. That that prayer is actually based on one of David's Psalms. And we know from David in Psalm 139, 7 to 10, the psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your righteousness shall hold me. There is no place to escape from God, ladies and gentlemen. Jonah knows he cannot escape from the presence of God in that sense. But it is also true that in the Old Testament time and in the New Testament, there was a particular place on earth which is associated with what we would call the manifest presence of God. And it is associated traditionally with this piece of furniture from the temple. It is the Ark of the Covenant. Not only is Indiana Jones interested in this, ladies and gentlemen, but Jonah himself, the son of Amittai, understands the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, according to Ezekiel, I mean Exodus 25, 22, is the place where God says, I will meet and speak with my people. The Ark of the Covenant is this beautiful box covered with a gold lid known as the mercy seat. Above it are two cherubim, and God says this, that I will listen to your supplications. I will speak to you. I will meet with you atop the mercy seat and between where the wingtips of the cherubim meet. It's a holy place where I will manifest myself in a very special type of presence. And I want to tell you, this box dwelt in Solomon's temple, which you can see here, a building that existed in the time of Jonah and one he was all too familiar with. When Jonah thought about escaping from the presence of God, what was he really talking about? Not that he could flee from God and God couldn't see him. But I want you to imagine if God, God told him, in fact, that he should go to Nineveh. And every morning he has decided that he will not go. See, we don't actually know how much time there is between these, between, you know, God telling him going or not going. But I believe that he opens the curtains every morning in his apartment in Jerusalem. And what's the first thing he spies on the top of the highest part of Jerusalem? the Temple Mount, 
And there right on top of the Temple Mount is what, ladies and gentlemen? It is Solomon's temple that had been in existence for 180 years before Jonah came along. And inside that temple, he knows, is the Holy of Holies. It is a place known as the throne room of God. Do you know in a modern castle today, in a modern castle, when you have uh, the king or a queen is present, throne room, that room is known still today as the presence room. It's in your notes. It's called the presence room. And this is what the holy of holies is in Solomon's temple. It's the presence room. It's where God comes and meets with his people under the old covenant. Jonah, therefore, cannot handle this. I believe. He's walking through the streets of Jerusalem. What's the highest point? What overshadows him? He might put his back to it, but as he turns around, what does he see? He sees this temple, and it reminds him all the time that God has told him to go to the people of Nineveh. So he has to escape from this, ladies and gentlemen. He has to physically leave the place where God meets with his people because it reminds him of his message and his mission. It produces guilt. It produces guilt, a feeling you and I do not like, but I have to tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, you might not like this today, despite what modern psychology might do and how they might try to medicate you away from guilt. Some guilt is really bad for you, but there is a God-given guilt that will be the savior of your soul because it leads to repentance, and then we get right with God, and then we can commune with God. Guilt is a natural byproduct of our Adamic natures when we are a country, living contrary to God's will. You know, there was this, um, in the Midwest America, during the time of the cowboys in the 19th century, there was a sheriff who had uh, taken three suspects for the crime of horse thievery. And he put them in this darkened room, and none of them would admit that they were the one who had stolen the horse, but he knew it was one of them. And in this room, he had a lantern, and then he had a table, and on that table, he had a pot, this big pot, and it was covered with soot, and it was turned upside down. And he said to the three suspects, I know one of you stole this horse, a serious crime, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. I know one of you stole this horse, so what I'm going to do is I have this magic rooster. And from behind his back, he pulled a sack, and he pulled out this rooster. And he said, this rooster is a guilt detector. And he said, I'm going to put it under the pot. And the first one of you that puts his hand on the pot who is guilty of this crime, the rooster will crow. Wow. The three suspects watched him put this so-called magic rooster under the soot-covered pot on top of the table. The sheriff turned down the lantern and he asked the first suspect to come forward, put his hand on the soot-covered pot. Not a squawk. Second suspect, not a cluck. Third suspect, not a peep. They moved back, all breathing easy, and the sheriff turned the lantern up, and he said to the first suspect, show me your hands, covered in soot. Second suspect, put up your hands, covered in soot. Third suspect, lily-white academic hands like mine that have never seen a decent day's work. And he said, you know what? You're the guilty one. The guy confessed. You see, he thought it would be weird that the, chicken, the rooster would actually crow, but he couldn't take the chance that it would crow. Do you know why some people, when they disobey God and move away from the things of the Lord, don't want to come to church anymore or start to pull back on their church attendance or connect group or life groups? 
I'll tell you why, ladies and gentlemen, because they have rebelled against God or there's some sin going on. They do not want to hear the crowing of their conscience. Because every time they hear beautiful music like that, or Reuben preaching, or they're gathering together with Christians, there's something inside of them. It's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's working on their conscience and it's saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. And you're saying, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> Please, Lord, I don't want to hear that. It's that guilt is going on here, so Jonah had to leave. But why did he go to Tarshish? If you look at your map, you'll see a good reason why. This is because Tarshish is a long way off from where God has sent him to. On the map, I want you to draw a line from Joppa to Tarshish and write 3,200 kilometers. 3,200 kilometers, ladies and gentlemen. 3,200 kilometers. And I want you to draw a line from Joppa to Nineveh. 800 kilometers. <laughs> 800 kilometers. You'll notice that they're di at diametrically opposite parts of the known world of that day. What's going on here? Why would he go to Tarshish of all places? Well, we know there's something the Bible says, two things the Bible says very specifically about the place of Tarshish. And archaeology actually confirms at least one of them, or in fact, both of them. In Isaiah 66 verse 19, in the very last chapter of the book of Isaiah, we read as follows, I will set a sign among them, and those who escape I shall send to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pul, to Lud, who draw the bow, to Tabal, to Javan, to the, now this is the important point, to coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. It is not enough for Jonah himself to flee from the presence of God. He wants to, he wants to dwell with a people who have not known the fame of God or seen his glory or know his name. Where's he going? He's going to a place in which God, the monotheistic God of the Jews, is completely unknown. So that he doesn't have to face what we would call today other believers other Christians. It's his escape mechanism so he does not have to be confronted with the guilt when he sees somebody who is loving the Lord and serving the Lord when he knows himself that he has decided not to. There's one more aspect of Tarshish which I don't have a lot of time to discuss this morning but it is this. It says in the scripture and this is confirmed by archaeology that it was a place of great mineral wealth. Gold, silver, copper. Archaeologists have discovered the mines, a place of metallurgy. Now, why might that be significant prophetically? I believe it's significant because when people decide that, they, when they find themselves under guilt and they decide not to come to church or to hang around with Christians anymore, that they often have to fill their lives with some other thing. And in a modern, modern language or vernacular of today, I would call that technology and the static and the distraction of the computer the internet, the television, and the radio. Whenever I come under guilt, when I decide I'm not going to obey God, when I decide I'm going to do something else other than what he is asking me to do, the great sin of commission or omission, I want to turn a DVD on. I need to have the radio on in the car. 
because I cannot have God speak to me because I will have guilt. When that small, still voice of the Holy Spirit starts to say, Adam, why are you doing that activity? Why are you engaging in those thoughts? Don't you realize it's contrary to my word and what I have called you to do and be as a Christian? I have to, I have, to have this cacophony of noise, a cornucopia of technology to drown it all out, ladies and gentlemen. Technology will do that for you. If you want to escape from God, you don't need to go to Tarshish on the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. You can do it in your own home and hide playing a video game. Absorbed, completely lost in the technology and the fantasy world that you're in. Never having to face the reality that God has called you, loves you, and has a purpose for you. And you are just thwarting that at that present time. I said I wasn't going to say much on that, but there we are. The second step down then is, of course, it's the furthest point. It's located at the opposite end of the known world from Nineveh. We're going to look at our second step, which is Jonah 1.3. But Jonah arose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them, the Phoenicians, not related to the blinds. For those of you wondering about those are Venetian blinds. These are Phoenicians. <laughs> it wasn't even an attempt at humor, folks. Because that was an attempt at humor. I'd be getting a better response than that. That was just me making an observation for you. <laughs> it is not the Venetian blinds. The Phoenicians. Jonah is on the next step that I often discover. I've been a Christian since I was the age of 18. I'm 48 years of age. You say, Adam, you don't look it. I know that. But I appreciate you, you expressing those sentiments in such a vocal voice today. Um, and I have noticed that when people start to cut back on their church attendance and um, hanging out with other Christians, they, they then start to hang out with other people to fill that social void. And Jonah is now, instead of associating himself with God's people, people he's called to be friends with and fellowship with, Jonah is going to associate himself with our polytheistic and pagan nation of the Phoenicians. And this is the point I find, and I know with myself, if I'm left to my own devices like Jonah, it's hard to see how he would not have lost out in this arrangement. One of the consequences of closing, uh, too closely associating with the Phoenicians is that they will impact us more than we will impact them. That's why God said to the children of Israel, don't marry people from other nations. Why? Because they will pull your heart away. They will pull your heart away. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have friends who aren't really good friends, who aren't believers. But I do am persuaded. I am persuaded that your most intimate relationships, the ones that sustain you spiritually and emotionally, must be from other Christians because they are of the kingdom of light and the only ones who really understand they're the ones who will pray for you. They're the ones who will grieve with you. They're the ones who will mourn with you, be happy with you. We should be the friends of sinners and lots of, lots of people that we like and like us. But those people that are our closest, the ones that we will be rubbing shoulders with, the ones who are carrying a burden with us and we're carrying their burdens, are going to be our brothers and sisters in the Lord in this whole life here we have on earth to extend his kingdom. Without God, access to God's temple and to his people, Jonah is morally rudderless. Who will be evangelizing whom in this situation? 
And boy, have I seen that when people have decided I'm not going to hang out at church. I'm going to associate and fill my life with the Phoenicians, these people who don't know God. I remember being, uh, I play a lot of basketball. I don't play myself. <laughs> gosh, gosh, we're getting a bit evangelistic there, aren't we? Evangelistic. Uh, I'm pretty uncoordinated, that sort of stuff, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that sort of sport anyway. But um, uh, my sons all play basketball. I've done a bit of coaching in basketball. And one of my sons was playing for a team, a North Harbour team. And um, the coach was getting pretty vocal. And he was saying things that he really probably shouldn't be saying to children of that age. Do we all understand? <laughs> kind of expletives and kind of harsh language. As a general rule, I don't mind that if the kids are older, if that's what the coach is and you've signed up for that, that's the way it is. And sometimes a bit of a hard nut as a coach can help, particularly with when teenage boys reach a certain age. It doesn't hurt to have a little bit of, um, you know, getting them in line. And people do that in different ways. But when it's younger, it was really inappropriate. And I was standing there talking to him. Uh, and, and at the end of the session, after he'd been saying the stuff, I, I went up to him and I said, um, I said, you know, <laughs> you're a really good coach. You know, it's that sandwich technique. Start with praise, <laughs> then the criticism, then end with praise. It's a terrible manage technique, management technique, and you see through it, folks. I know it when the boss is doing it. Anyway, so I said, you know, you're a great coach. I appreciate your time and all, but I really would, I, please don't. Um, I don't think it's appropriate that you should that, use that language with uh, children of this age. Awkward, isn't it? So I said this, and um, he stood there, and um, he said, yeah, you know, you're right. He said, oh, I'm sorry, and, and I did, you're right, I shouldn't speak like that with these young, young lads. And then he said, and I thought this was very interesting, he said, you know, you've really pointed out something that's going on here. In the work environment I'm in at this present time, a lot of people swear and use expletives just about in every sentence. And he said, the funny thing is, I have picked it up and it's become part of my vocabulary. And I, he's not making excuses necessarily. He's just making an observation on what was going on. What had happened to him? He was saying that the people he rubbed shoulders with on a regular basis were influencing his vocabulary. How much more might it influence our morality by the company that we keep? I know it's very unfashionable scripture to, to read from, and it sounds archaic and out of touch with us today, but 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what concord has Christ with Baal, or what part has a believer with the unbeliever in this context? Our third step down is the final one, and it's one of spiritual deception. Spiritual deception. But Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. How can this be? This is the last stage in a moral decline in Jonah's life. He goes from being a prophet in the presence of the Lord in the city of Jerusalem to a deadly indifference in the hull of a sinking ship. He had succumbed to what I believe many people fall to, and it is the idea of a deceptive peace that all is well, when in fact all hell is spiritually breaking loose. Do not think that because the physical realm of your job, your vocation, your family, your sporting or music achievements, 
Just because all is going well in all those spheres, that spiritually hell is not breaking loose in this type of environment. Jonah has in fact become a false prophet. By sleeping, he's suggesting there is no danger. In Ezekiel 13.10, they have seduced my people saying peace when there is no peace. I find it curious that sometimes if I speak to people, they'll say I have a peace over a matter. And sometimes that peace is about them doing something that might be contrary to the word of God. Or the fact they no longer come to church, they no longer fellowship with believers. Now please, don't be harsh on people you might know like this. Because I believe we've all been at these various steps at different times for different reasons. And maybe not for the ones I'm talking about now. But I do believe that these are the steps that we take often when we start to leave God. And it's going to lead to disastrous results. But sometimes people will say, well, I have a peace over this, Adam. The Bible doesn't ask you to have a peace. It just says to obey his word. How do you know that you love God? And that you keep his commandments. If someone is doing something contrary to the commandments of God and they say they have a peace, that's deceptive. It's a deceptive peace that has lulled them into assuming that everything is all right. It's not. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he surely reap, though the time between the sowing and the reaping may be days, weeks, months, years, or in eternity, rest assured of this, it is a spiritual truth that cannot be broken unless something spiritual happens. And we're going to look at this presently. Jonah went from being a blessing to the sailors, which is what he should have been, to being a curse. And this downward journey is never about you. It will always affect other people. It will always I know at times you may think that when you and I step away from God, you and I are just doing ourselves a big disservice and no one else is getting hurt. On the contrary, it is a falsehood that the devil wants you to believe and it is not supported by the scripture. There are always consequences with other people. Can you see the ripples, ladies and gentlemen? That it has started to expand when Jonah got onto that boat fleeing from God. It wasn't just about him. Every man and woman on that vessel's life was in danger due to that storm. And any other vessel in that part of the Mediterranean was at great threat because of Jonah. You recall this young man I talked to you about earlier. Don't think that all seems well when you start to run away from God. We're actually, in fact, storing up trouble for ourselves and for other people. We left our young man. You'll recall the story I told earlier about the ark welding. It's a funny thing about ark welding and what happens when you look at that light. You are overexposed to UV light, and it burns the cornea. You get a sunburn of the cornea, on your, in your eyes. The funny thing about this condition is, well, let me tell you what happened. In the early hours of the morning, while they all slept and slumbered, the pastor and his wife, they were awoken to the most horrific 
death-curdling scream they had probably ever heard. They rushed into the bedroom and that young boy was lying in the bed wanting, I guess, to rip his eyeballs out. You see, when you are overexposed to that UV light from arc welding, it burns the cornea and it's as if someone grabbed a handful of sand in one hand, a handful of sand in the other, and then decides to push it into your open eyes. It's like having sandpaper on your eyes. It's incredibly, incredibly painful. The pain will pass with time, but if you think about it, the most intriguing thing of the condition is that it takes time to manifest. You see, I bet you that when he went to bed, he may have thought, why did the pastor not want me to look at that light? He said it would cause me harm. It would cause problems. And I see no harm. I experience no discomfort. What would he know? That's like you and I. When we disobey God, we run from God. We often think everything is going fine. But in the early hours of some morning, there is always a reaping. There is always a reaping, unless, unless we do what Jonah did. You see, the only hope for Jonah came when he realized that he was on the run and he faced up to what he had done. And that's my last point as we finish up today. If we could have our last slide up here, sir. Only when Jonah admits he is on the run is there hope for a change. It is the message that sometimes we least hear in church, but I want to tell you it's a doorway to your continuing being in God's presence and having a clear conscience and being able to pray, to worship, to enjoy being with God's people. It is one word. It's called repentance. It is called repentance. You know the seven churches of Asia Minor? God asked, I think, at least three, if not four of them, to repent. Those were churches. I kind of think that given our own inclination to flee from God, disobey God, talking about myself here, I know you guys never think about these sort of thoughts or it never crosses your mind not to do something God wants you to do. <laughs> but for me, repentance is at least a weekly occurrence. Well, I have to face up to my pride, my selfishness, my stupidness, and I have to take a look at myself in the mirror and I go, look at what I am here. Is this honoring God and is it in obedience to his word? Am I walking in his spirit in this area? And I have to go, no, I fall short here, Lord. Please, I repent of this, Lord. Let me turn my life. I ask for forgiveness. And that's exactly what Jonah does. He says, I am the cause of the storm. All your lives are in danger because of me. Throw me overboard. <laughs> In a sense, we have to throw overboard our own pride, our own importance, and we have to say, God, I am wrong here, sir. I ask for your forgiveness. And of course, the most terrific thing about Jesus is this. The Bible says if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, Adam, I may be on, you may be on step one thinking about step one, the moving away from his presence and, and going to a place called Tarshish, the computer, the entertainment. It may be that you've already started to associate with a whole lot of people who you know are actually influ influencing you adversely. You know they are. 
I know it when they do it. Hopefully you haven't reached the place where you think all is well and you're living in gross sin and it needs to be sorted out because that's a deceptive peace, ladies and gentlemen. It really is. My last point, and I'll just end with this, um, is that technology's really good. Stay away from chat rooms. Nearly all the people I've spoken to have gotten into this kind of area of sexual immorality. It's often centered around technology, chat rooms, conversations, places on the internet. It's a deadly, deceiving, deceitful trap that will capture you. Come on, gentlemen, don't do it. And if you have to ask somebody in your life to disciple you, you have to come to an elder and say, hey, and this has happened in church services. I, just even when I preached on this message a wee while back, there was a guy who came up afterwards. That's why I'm mentioning it today. I didn't mention it then so much, but there will be somebody here who is caught in this nasty, nasty trap and they want to escape desperately. And some, and the, but unless you break it out of its secret zone, it will be a curse. And it is a terrible place to live with guilt because I've done it. You don't want to be in that place. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the goodness of God. It's his gospel transforming our lives. Stay with our Christian brothers and sisters. Converse and commune with them during the week and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's a story of Jonah. Lord, we thank you that you are good to us. And Lord, you do protect us. But sometimes, Lord, our flesh gets in the way and we move away from your presence. We think we somehow can escape or we can drown out the noise of your Holy Spirit speaking to us about issues in our life. Let today be the day that we confess, own up, and be honest with where we are. I pray if there's anybody here in this church who is suffering under the weight of guilt, you are able to carry their burden. You are the one that can cleanse them as we sang by your blood that they would be white as snow like a newborn baby this day, this hour, this church, right now. I pray, Lord, that they would be man or woman, be bold to come and speak either to me, to one of the elders or the church leaders or someone they really trust and talk about what they're going through that they need not fight it alone, whatever it might be. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.